Over the last few months, we've spoken to some of the country's best chefs and we've enjoyed every minute. So to celebrate getting 10 episodes in, and more importantly, to celebrate the restaurants flinging open their doors once again, we've decided to compile the highlights of what we've heard so far. Something of a tasting menu, if you will. So if you've missed any of our podcasts, sit back and enjoy a series of amuse-bouches, all packed with flavour. This is Source Material. So welcome along to our best of source material so far and hopefully the podcast has been a weekly soundtrack to what has been a pretty tough and quiet few months. It's definitely been the case for the restaurant industry with doors closed, many places being forced to shut for good. For Tom Shepard, the former head chef of Michelin star Adams, 2020 was meant to be the year he opened his first solo venture, but that has had to be delayed for now. It it will happen. Uh, there's no two ways about it. I will get the right investment that's needed for that. Uh, you know, I, have, I do have people interested in doing that, so it's going to happen. Uh, but it will always be on the right terms. And, and, and what I've found recently uh, with what we're doing, it's, it's taken up all my focus, which is, which is a good thing. So, What does that mean then in terms of the opening day? Because I know it was sort of planned for, for late 2020. So yeah. do you have a, a date in mind or is it just it could be any time? Listen, I, it, yeah, I think it changes. Uh, I think uh, if you would have asked me that question last week, I would have been hopeful of, of a sort of a Christmas, maybe early, early 2021 opening. Uh, now it's, I think also that the actual the actual desire shifts uh, or the necessity shifts, as I say, in essence, if I just want, I just want a restaurant open, you know, there's, uh, I, I was quite sort of driven, uh, driven sort of, passionate chef who, who always wanted to do things quickly, you know, wanted to, I wanted to do this under 30 and this under 30, but, you know, I've got I've got I've got an amazing family and an amazing little girl, and, and to be honest, that's my only focus now. So, regardless of when 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 the restaurant opens, it, it will open when it opens, and it will it will only open at the right time. I don't want to force an opening. I don't want to pressure on an opening. I want to ensure that uh, you know our guests are comfortable, and, and the restaurant opens with 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 the, with the full capacity it enables itself to do anything but that. It, it won't feel right. Um, so, if I can try and just sort of yeah, sort of balance myself until, until that day open, until that day happens and that, that, that's fine so in answer to your question I, there isn't there isn't really a date I'll, I'll be hopeful for early 2021 still um, I think you know certain trades have been allowed to go back and especially the build trade has so I think actually fitting the restaurant won't be it won't be an issue especially time wise I think that would be massively decreased from the I think it was a 10 month plan I think it would be quite easily achievable in 6 to 7 months now quite easily so you know we, we, we've definitely got we're still in that cusp of of a uh, of, of potential of potential time period, but as as you've said, you know, as I've said, it, it's important for me that um, uh, that we open in the right in the right manner, uh, and the restrictions are completely lifted on the hospitality industry because I can honestly say I won't be opening until that happens. That's for sure. Now, from a Villa fans' perspective, often we, what we need to do is take positives where there aren't really any there. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I guess I guess the good thing is that you must have thought, well, okay, everyone's probably told me at some point whilst I've had this plan or this dream of opening up my own place, it's not easy. It's difficult. There are going to be bumps in the road. You probably had the biggest bump you could possibly think about having right at the start. And and hopefully it might get a little bit easier from, I don't know, whenever it opens onwards. I totally agree. Yeah. I think, yeah, and you're right. It's it's really funny. You speak to the older sort of characters. I mean, even Adam, you know, Adam Stokes. I remember him uh, when I first started there and I said, uh, because he, he literally handed the whole entire kitchen over to me. And just, he, he really gave an impression like he was, 
you know, it's sort of a, a pressure off his shoulders had been lifted. I was wanting to take that anyway. I said, you know, you got any aspirations to open restaurants? I said, oh, God, no, you know, I'm happy with this one. And, you know, it, it takes enough doing a 60-seater restaurant, you know, from a day-to-day basis. But, you know, a year, a year later, they opened the Boyster Club. Do you know what I mean? It was, I was just like, why do you do it? He said, it's not me, it's the missus. You know, it's <laughs> mental. He was like, I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to do it again. And, you know, then he did that and he got that sort of buzz and excitement back. And he did go, I think he did go pretty smoothly. I was involved a bit to a certain extent. Obviously, I had to run Adams, but I was involved with that to an extent, which was really exciting. But that, that, that went pretty well, you know, it went pretty smooth. But, yeah, for, for a pandemic to, uh, to just rip, you, rip, you, rip your dreams apart, literally within, within starting point, is uh, it, yeah, it's quite hard, but as I said, you know, it's it, it is what it is. It's affected everybody in all different ways, and I think given one given one side of things, which is a brutal thing to say, but it's it's very honest. And I know a lot of people I saw Paul Ainsworth I think wrote something a few weeks ago, and Paul Foster has as well. I think it will determine the sort of the strong sort of restaurants that are left in the trade. I think I think unfortunately, I think the weaker ones who are, are, are probably I, I don't like to say this, but almost toying at the idea of owning a restaurant or running a restaurant, I think they will, they will unfortunately fall. And on the wayside, and that's no fault of their own in, in retrospect, if it was out of the pandemic, they'll still be running day to day now. But I do feel that it will, it will do that. And, you know, I would have been one of them without a shadow of a doubt. I wouldn't have been able to survive if I was opened at all. So, you know, I'm thankful for that. One of the themes of our episodes so far is how kitchens are changing for the better. No more yelling, no more abuse, and one chef really intent on making her restaurant a great place to work is Sally Abbey, head chef of London's only Michelin star pub, the Harwood Arms. My first and foremost concern is my team. You know, they're the people that are going to go on and keep this industry alive, and I think they should be treated with respect and treated fairly and and, um i've worked hard to sort of create an environment that that encourages kindness and and respect and just just being nice to each other i know it sounds stupid but you know in so many kitchens um it's become acceptable to to you know be a horrible person and and in and I never quite understood why. I mean, I know it's, it is high pressure and it is fast, you know. They need it now, now, now. And I understand that and I can work like that. But I don't want people to call each other names just because of it. There's just no need, you know. And so the kitchen, we speak to each other properly. I mean, we swear and we have a laugh. Don't get me wrong. It's not boring. But, you know, we don't swear at each other, if that makes sense. So we can be a bit boisterous, but we never you know, we never put each other down, we bring each other up and we help each other and, and, and that's the most important thing for me is that team because I know if you treat them with respect, they'll respect you and then they'll have your back when you most need them to. But, I mean, in terms of looking after them, we do other things like, um, so on a Monday afternoon, my personal trainer, Ollie Frost, he um, comes in and we do like a mobility class. So it's basically, it's, it's a little bit of yoga, it, it's like a movement class. So we do things for our shoulders and our wrists and our hips to sort of, you know, because we're standing on our feet all day, we need to get get mobile. So that's something that we do on a Monday. Uh, we also yeah, offer the Hospitality Action assist, uh, Employee Assistance Programme, which offers things like debt advice, um, legal advice, uh, counselling. You know, a lot of chefs do have um, mental health issues or drug issues or whatever they may be. Um, and obviously I'm on hand to sort of try and help them with that as much as possible, but I'm not a professional. So we have that in place so that if they come to me with problems, I can sort of direct them in the right place rather than just being like, no, I can't help you. Because I think 
traditionally, you know, if, if you were making mistakes in the kitchen, you just sort of get screamed at. But actually, if you just take that person outside for five minutes and say, look, what what's going on? Like, what's wrong? Like, why, you know, why, what, why are you finding this so difficult? Or is there something going on? And 99 out of 100 times, they'll you know, have just broke up with their boyfriend or they're being kicked out of their flat or, you know, there's some other problem going on. And I think the other one time they're probably hungover, to be honest. So. <laughs> Surely not. Uh, <laughs> and were there times when, when you were a young chef where you thought, why isn't this being done? Or, you know, I'm struggling at the moment and, you know, the, the people in charge of, of various kitchens don't seem to, to get the, the point that, yelling at me is it isn't going to make it any better or make me perform any better yeah ab- absolutely I, I think again it's that people chefs especially put so much pressure on themselves that i think you know the the, prof- the pursuit of perfection clouds them their behavior to a certain extent you know they talk to talk to their staff in ways that they would never speak to a member of their family or you know can can you imagine I've said this before but can you imagine if um someone was stacking the shelves in Tesco and that particular person accidentally knocked all the stuff off the shelf can you imagine if the manager came over and started screaming at them and, and calling them you know the most awful names under the sun everyone would be outraged and yet it's acceptable in kitchens do you know it just doesn't compute to me and it never has one chef who knows all about how it feels to struggle with life in the hospitality trade is Rishikesh Desai, a former Rue Scholar and Chef of the Year with a Michelin star restaurant in the Lake District. But when he was first starting out and training in France, he was subjected to the sort of abuse no person should have to put up with. For French to mingle with Indians was like a no-no at that time. Look, traditions, culture, um, and you know how everybody behaves is very different. And when you go to a, to a country, uh, or even for, the, for them, the people who are staying in the country, for them to receive a stranger can be sometimes different, and which is what I faced big time, big time. Don't get me wrong. If you want to call it as racism, you know, I, I've got no issues with it. But it big time I face, you know, calling me names like you Indian, um, you know, why are you working this way? Or every time you go to the supermarket, you get stopped, you get checked. Then every time you're checking out after putting your food on the belt and paying for it, you get stopped, you get checked. Uh, you go to the airport to receive your friend, you get stopped, you get asked 100,000 different questions. You, uh, you get asked, where is your passport? Uh, on the bus, out of all, you will be always targeted, you know, show us your ticket. Uh, so all, all those bits and bobs were there. And, and even in school, it was quite um, ha- hard for to get in because, uh, you know, how it, how it is possible for someone to come to, to a country from India, how it is possible for someone to speak French, how it is possible for someone who can cut, chop, dice faster. Uh, so all these bits and bobs were there. But I, th- I think that was a, a part which I, I'm happy that I have gone through. It, it, you know, you, you always say it makes you stronger. Uh, it made me stronger, but it, equally, it has given me a chance to uh, tell a story to someone who will be facing similar sort of problems somewhere in the world or in here or, or, or whatever it is. So, yeah, the, the culture shock was huge. This part of uh, the behavior patterns was was huge. Uh, but I think I think I'm I'm really happy that I was able to deal with it. Uh, and that is purely because my parents used to always say, you don't worry about it. Uh, you know, you do your best. It's it's so 
noble though for you to to sit there even now and, and maybe time helps you deal with it a little bit and say well i i dealt with it and it's something that's that's in the news at the moment and forever and a day myself as a white male will never be able to say i understand that process that you went through in france but there must have been times where you where you considered thinking do i want to carry on doing this and if this is the way i'm treated and i guess also you're a long, long way from home and sometimes it might be quite difficult to speak to anyone about about how you're feeling and, and what's going on over there. That is true. I mean, that that feeling of why I am picked upon all the time and why I am under scrutiny or under a watchful eye every time, even I'm walking or doing something in the kitchen, uh, it's, it's always there. And th- this was this was from the French. The school was 40 different nationalities. There were Canadians, Israelis, there were people from Morocco, Tunisia, etc., etc. But if, this was much more from, 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 the, from the French. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, the school may not be happy if, if they listen to this, but I think I, it is important for them to know as well. To get penalized because I wrote my um, training report in French, and to get penalized because I did not conjugate the verbs proper, properly or I did not, uh, you know, conjugate the nouns with masculine and feminine. And that's the reason why your marks been deducted. I think that is that is absolute crap. Yeah. What's the objective in here? The objective is that I went to Shatut Banyols for my training. I've come back from there. I've matured. I've learned new techniques. I've learned new skills and that I've put in the report. And you are penalizing me because I haven't conjugated the verbs. Come on. So um, why? Uh, yeah, I had those feelings that, you know, why me? Whether it's worth it, what should I do? Should I talk with someone? Um, but there is something in there, Rob, in my head. I don't know. I don't know how other others deal with it. But for me, um, it never was an issue. You know, it was never an issue of being marked down or no for me it was more about the education my skills and what I'm learning and how the future will be and I think that sort of helped me to keep carrying on and moving forward. For any chef the moment you earn that elusive Michelin star is one that will stay with you forever. Rob Palmer head chef at Hampton Manor in the Midlands was our first guest on Source Material and reflected on the day his dreams came true. For us, it was the first year of them doing their launch that they do now, so everyone gets invited to the to the launch in London. And it was the first year of them hosting that, so we got our invitation via phone call or email, I think our director got it on a Thursday, um, before the event on the Monday. So we was like, well, we, must have, we must have won a staff. But then, obviously, all that weekend, then you've been invited. You don't know that you're getting a star back there because it was the first time of this thing. You didn't. We sort of had, we assumed, but we didn't know for definite. I think it was at the Savoy House or something like that. I can't remember what, it's, what it was called, but um, and we get put in this holding room. There's me, the director, and our general manager. All three of us have been invited, and this, and then when we looked around the room, it was just chefs, and we're like. Oh, what's going on here? We've been invited. We're not winning a star. We're winning something else. And and then this this um this this woman from Michelin kept coming over and just talking to us and saying, "Oh, you'll be going on the stage first before anybody else." After I think Claire Smythe was doing a speech, after she'd been presented with a I think she won chef woman's woman's chef of the year or something like that. Um, 
we was going on stage. Like, Why are we going on stage for? And, we, and my director turned around to this woman and went, "We ain't come here and just won some shitty award, and we're not picking a star up." And she was like, "You can't say that." And we was like, well, "Like we've come here expecting." And then in the end, we was in this second little holding room afterwards with nobody else. And I was like, "Look, you'll be going on the stage again after this." And I was like, "God for that!" Like we're getting a star as well. But we won a we won a service award, the first ever. Na- um, the Michelin Service Award that was never been given out before so we won that and then we won the star as well so the it was weird because it was hard to experience because I think all the other chefs before that just get the guard release on that day and they look in the guard and they've got a star on the oven whereas we got we got it so it was a massive elation and you get called up on stage in front of well, I think in the front row there was Sat Baines Heston Blumenthal um Claude Bossy, Tom Kerry, so it was all there looking at you, like, fuck. <laughs> but like, these are all people we've looked up to all our career, not really sort of. And it's just, yeah, it was, it was amazing. Then we come back and had a pretty wicked party on the night, then, to be fair. We invited all the staff back to uh, get on it. <laughs> get on it, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Um, well, at least, you, at least you sort of sent something because you didn't go too crazy on the welcome drinks and then sort of stumbled up onto yeah. the stage. Um, the thing about getting a Michelin star, and it's, I guess, something of a parallel to the world of sport and that you get to like the top of a mountain and then what do you do from there and I guess there's potentially the worry for for the psychology of of a chef that you don't become intent on improving you just become so worried about losing something you've got definitely I think we always I think our goal is to keep pushing and you know if we get if we don't get to so be it, but we'll we'll fight until we'll keep fighting. We won't we won't ever give up on it. But um, the hardest thing is evolution, like evolving, like because this if you just keep doing what you what you want to start with, that's going to be dated. So you have you have to keep evolving. Like this, we won't. There's things that we want to start with that we'd never do now. So like that was four four years ago we won the star. So it's like there's certain things that we'd never do that we want to start with, and you're like. And that's how quick food evolves and changes. So you do have to keep evolving, and that, and that comes with, and then and that can eventually turn into hopefully achieving a bit more, achieving in a second star and five rosettes or whatever. But you know that that's the dream is to keep pushing, like never to sort of, never to look over, never to look back, just to look forward. And there is that potential you could lose it, but that's up to me and to keep my team on their toes and sort of not let them, not let them slip. And I guess the other question, you, sp- you spoke about being at, at that Michelin night and seeing people like Heston Blumenthal, Sat Baines, and, and they're obviously sort of guys that you respect massively and, and sort of look up to. But now there there will be chefs making their way in the industry who, who see you as that sort of that role model or someone that they can ask for experience. What what would be the sort of key experience to getting to that level of, of a Michelin star in, in what you do with your menu? Um, for me, it's it's just simplicity. You don't mess about too much with anything. We try try and keep things to free flavors on a plate. That's always what I've, what I've never told the lads that are developed trying to develop this year is just free flavors on a plate. Like free main. Obviously, there's things that you put into for seasonings and things like that that you 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 change things. But three core things, and that's for me. That's it. Like never overcomplicate anything. Um, don't over manipulate ingredients. Like we try and look after it and treat it 
just treat every ingredient with the same or a pit, treat a carrot with the same respect as you treat a, a fillet of beef like it's just it might not cost as much but it's still going to have the same impacts on the plate if you look after it now alex claridge is a chef with an eye for the unique his restaurant the wilderness in birmingham ants on a plate twists on balties and big macs he explained the thought process behind his exciting menus and how his food evolves the best ideas I think we have in this business are not ones which are built because we sit down, clap our hands and go, let's be creative. It's the conversations that we have mid-service, you know, with, with the rest of the lads in the kitchen. Um, you know, my current head chef, Marius, all the best ideas we have are unrehearsed. They're not postured. Um, and I think I've, whilst my gut does sometimes make some spectacularly poor choices, I still feel like... We are, to, we are at our best when we, to a point, put blinkers up. You know, I don't spend a great deal of time focusing on what other people are doing. Um, I don't take a great deal of inspiration from other chefs. I'm not particularly interested in, in that. Um, I'd rather avoid it because I don't want those ideas to get in my head and pollute, pollute kind of, you know, the creative thoughts that might otherwise just, you know, meander around and occasionally turn into something worthwhile. But I think creativity, it has to sort of exist a little bit on an island, you know, you need to lead a life that inspires you and you need to lead a life rich with experience to do so. But I think you can sort of just let it sit. If it doesn't come out of you like a fire, if it doesn't come out of you with a kind of a, a raw, red-hot passion where you go, fuck, man, I need to do this thing or I really want to do this thing or I really want to eat this thing, I don't really want to do it. Um, and there's a self-destructive element to that as well, but everyone's different, but that, that's certainly how, how I work. It has to be all or nothing really with me um, which plays out in a variety of ways but I think it's what's always kept our our business evolving what's always kept us you know I suppose seeking really there's a constant search for better dishes or dishes that that somehow speak more of of this restaurant and I don't think we'll ever get there you know, depressing thought don't think we'll ever get there I think we'll only ever circle it but I'd much rather that than us kind of do a menu that gets a pretty good reception and then not change it. That to me feels like stagnation and uh, stagnation is, is not something which I'm interested in, in entertaining. Uh, now you mentioned that with dishes that you, you take them off because you know too many journalists ask the question about them or they become almost a monster of, of the menu in, in a way. Guess which one I'm going to ask you about. <laughs> if it's about the ants then I'm hanging up. It's definitely not. It's no. It's not about the ants. It's not about the ants. It's a, it's the homage to a very famous hamburger. We talked and we sort of touched on that creative path. How do you get to the point where you think I want to try a twist on a Big Mac and stick it on my menu? I mean, I think it's just art imitating life. Um, you know, the Big Mac came about. It was one of the first dishes that um, when Stu Dealey was with me as head chef that we did together. Um, you know, and. We ate a lot of junk food in this kitchen, you know. <laughs> when, when, when certainly when Stu first joined, we did not have enough staff, so in lieu of enough staff, it was just a hell of a lot of um, graft. It was a a lot of time spent in a small space with a, a very small team, and um, that's thing which we always kind of ate and we discussed the idea, and um, you know, Stu kind of brought together you know the the elements for it, and, and we kind of sat and discussed it and. Yeah, I mean that that dish is one of the ones which we 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 frequently have a turmoil over whether it should retire. Um, I think as it is served currently, I think it is done. It will not be back on our menu as it's been served before. I'm quite interested in 
maintaining a dish that still has the overall emotional experience of it just because for me it felt like a very rebellious dish for a you know call it imposter syndrome but as someone who didn't grow up eating particularly nice food or particularly well that's no disparagement like you know i was fed uh just <laughs> good you know my my my, uh, my mum went to iceland and and then some really so you know i think i felt that level of kind of fraud over not perhaps coming from pedigree if you will not having kind of eaten all these kind of uh traditionally french luxury dishes so to open a tasting menu with a dish that is based on the world's most universal junk food it, it kind of feels like an appropriate statement as to what we wish to say um, but if it does come back post corona it will come back different um significantly so you're listening to source material available from all major podcast providers to get in touch, use the hashtag SourceMaterial on social media. So, what's it like to work at one of the most famous and decorated restaurants in the world? Heston Blumenthal's The Fat Duck in Bray is known for its amazing flavours and theatre. And Amy Ellis told us what it was like to learn there and develop both technique and creativity. The Fat Duck was, was incredible. I went into the pastry section and at the time there's just three of us there's eight chefs in the kitchen um and i i had no experience with pastry whatsoever which was which was ideal for 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 that sort of kitchen because you want to be molded and um to be honest with you there's no you know there's nothing classic about um what you're going to be cooking pastry wise in the fat duck so it was yeah it was it was quite mind-blowing Take me through the, the process then of, of when a, a dish comes on the menu or you learn to make one of these weird and wacky things that, that Heston comes up with. Is it a case that, that he and a couple of others were away in their sort of lab doing it and then you just get presented and then you are taught sort of verbatim each step to get it to where he wants it to go? Well, there are, there, there are obviously there are the dishes. So when I was there, you know, there were dishes that had been on there for quite a few years by then. And, um, you're, you know, you're always sort of developing part of it if, if you know, the dishes were evolving in very small ways. And then new dishes, yeah, you would have, you know, would have, you know, our food scientist, which was who lived down in the last shed in the garden. And there'd be, you know, nonstop uh, work going on down there. And you'd, you'd be part of it, you know, you'd always be part of what's going on. Um, you wouldn't be blocked out of, you know, of a new dish or working on it because you'd all be tasting it. You'd all be trying it. Um, you'd be making it work. So it wasn't like, look, this is what we're doing. You're, it was a group. It was definitely a group thing. I mean, your input was important. As a youngster, you m- you must be absolutely wide-eyed to some of the stuff and some of the equipment he's using because I guess yeah. Howard's, without knowing too much, would be relatively classic and it, it, it's done by you know as it has been for years and years in, in kitchens all up and down the land and all over the world whereas Heston and the Fat Duck are doing something just completely left field. Completely left field um, but logically it made so much sense because the whole point was you, you were trying to create something sort of fantastical but consistently um, and and it was all about consistency. So if you always had a measured amount of salt water in a giant pan of hot water 
and you're having the exact same thing cooking in it, it for the right time, it should always be the same. You know, that's a very basic point. That's not taking any of your uh, modern equipment, anything into it, which would just hopefully make life faster, which makes, you know, means you could do like 10 jobs at the same time rather than just one or two. So yeah, you ha I had to get my head around quite a lot. And naturally, um, you know, I'm very much of a, you know, let's just flavor it. Let's just chuck some salt in, try it. And, you know, yeah, forget it. You couldn't do that. See, where, and what, but when I look at, at classic menus and if you Google something like Heston's best dishes and you get snail porridge and you get yeah. sound of the sea and you mm. get egg and bacon ice cream, mm. then I look at another menu and I see Mermaid's Lagoon, Cow Pie, Catch the Golden Snitch. I think surely that experience working with Heston helps you in a process like the Great British Menu where you're looking ultimately to create the sort of thing that he often creates. Yeah, I mean, you know... The, the, looking back at the time in the kitchen there, ideas were just embraced, you know, and um, and that was really fun. It's like, come on, you know, I remember saying at one point, let's let's just make the jammy dodger, you know, let's just try and do that. It's like, yeah, how are we going to do that? And it's like, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's fun. And I think that fun bit was, it's, I think if you're a naturally creative person, then you know, there are no limits. You can try and do as much as possible. Um, and I think that side of the kitchen, especially at the time, because there were just so few of us, was, yeah, it was pretty electric um, at moments in between you being sort of very tired. <laughs> <laughs> On episode four, we chatted to Jersey-born Joe Baker about his culinary journey around the world. Joe trained in Australia and Spain, has now taken his ideas back home at the highly rated number 10 in the island's capital, St. Helier. Well, Australia was my first proper job in like a good restaurant. And that was a real eye opener. I mean, I had a few shockers. I remember one time, one of the, I think he was this, to me, he felt like kind of a demigod, but I think he was actually just a senior CDP or something. And uh, he let me borrow his little paring knife to do some veggie job. And I ended up finishing the job. End of the day, he's like, where's my knife, Joe? And uh, I was like, fuck, I don't know, um, shit. And, uh, and I ended up having to rifle through about six Euro bins full of waste in 40 degree <laughs> Australian sunshine to find this guy's paring knife. And it's like, <laughs> those are the hard lessons I learned from that, from that, you know, particular job. Like, focus, be organised, don't throw someone's don't paring knife in the bin, bin by mistake, yeah. you know? Like, and I was real, like, absolutely bottom of the pile there but I learned loads because it's a good kitchen um and yeah in terms of food influence I mean Australia is you know Western Australia is very close to you know Asia and Indonesia so there was a lot of influence from there which I've never really hadn't really seen before um and actually in general my taste of Australian food was I think it's at a very high level um and I think they, they've got great ingredients and you know certainly at that time ahead of us in, in many ways um and then contrasted with Spain you know that was all of I worked somewhere quite traditional and that was great because you just their reverence for their tradition and for their ingredients is just amazing you know rather than looking out trying to bring exotic things in you know they really focus on what they have and to me that resonates more strongly that's an idea that I really you know I, I kind of found inspiration from that thoroughly 
Did you always find that whilst you were working at, at those sorts of places that, that your mind you felt was sort of in tandem with what was going on and you were having ideas of your own and, and thinking about mm. way that dishes would work rather than just going in and doing the sort of physical prep yeah. part of it and then going home? Yeah, I mean, for me, I always felt and had confidence in my kind of taste or vision. You know, um, it was about learning the rudiments. You know, my dad always would tell me that about you know he he's very musical and he'd always say look you can be creative once you've learned the rudiments and for me having not had the sort of classical formal training in a kitchen it was very important for me to just get those rudiments up to scratch um you know knife skills basic mise en place skills you know really drill myself a bit because that sort of creative side of it always came very naturally and and I think you know it actually really helped that I didn't come from a very sort of formalized cooking background because I didn't have I didn't just adopt any one view. Like if you work for a big name, you know, you see it. Like show me one chef who's worked for a big name most of their lives and their food is always, you know, it might even get better than their their, their mentor, but it's always a shadow in some way of their mentor. Um, where I didn't really have that, uh, which is a negative in a way because you definitely don't learn as much. <laughs> but um, also means you can be a bit freer. Well, freer and also I think probably what I would say from, from watching you, and obviously, you know, with, with TV and the way it works, you don't always get the truest version of no. a person through, through TV edits, but certainly watching The Great British Menu, it, it seems to me that you have a great courage of your convictions, that even when you go through a process and, and a very respected chef will sometimes say, well, I think you should do that, that and that, and then it comes to, to cooking that dish again, mm. and you, ha you haven't, you've sort of stuck with with what you wanted to do originally because you believed in in the dish yeah i mean you know like you said tv there's certain uh restrictions that you know you don't see outside of the what you see on tv but i definitely have confidence in my convictions i mean i you know i don't i don't lionize any of these people i respect them but i don't think they're like you know they're just blokes they can get it wrong like you know on the other hand i'm stubborn so in the moment i might be like oh no 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 but then i will go back well, like Joe, Harriet Mansell also appeared on this year's Great British Menu. It was the former luxury yacht chef's first time on the show. And as Harriet explained, not everything was as seamless as it looks on the telly. One thing I'd say to anyone who has never done anything like this or a TV competition or whatever, anything or, or whatever, like myself, pre doing the Great British Menu, <laughs> would sit and... <laughs> yell things at the TV <laughs> screen and so on um, is that you cannot you cannot appreciate the pressure and, and actually what it feels like to go into a, a, a hot studio surrounded by film crew and people scrutinising your every move when you're not normally used to that and the nerves I, I had a piece of paper in front of me which had my you know to-do list for, for my mise en place and Obviously, what happened was I couldn't read it because it was blurry in my mind because I was panicking. So, so I was like, what is next? What do I have to do next? But I can't read it, so I'll just ignore it. And then, and then obviously, <laughs> and then, you know, uh, I had Richard Corrigan as my judge and he's coming around. He's like, and what do you think of this? La, la, la. And you're like, uh, uh. And then you have to go back to cook it. And I just, me you know, I messed up uh, key elements during that process of kind of frazzlement. Um, but there's nothing you can do, is there? It's done. Absolutely, but, but I also food? I also think there is there is something very refreshing about about the way you approached it, and you know you see so many people every year with this this great sort of this bluster, and obviously sort of back themselves, and particularly maybe people who've been on two or three times before. And Richard says, "What do you think?" 
it's like, I don't know, about an eight or a nine. And you're all there, that really <laughs> worried look on your face, when like, I don't know, maybe a two, maybe a three. <laughs> possibly, possibly a three. Three at a stretch. <laughs> but do you think, yeah. do you think that you, you, when you watched it back, were you sort of happy with, with, with how you came across? Do you think that's a, a decent interpretation of, of who you are? Okay, so to answer your question, I very vaguely watched the first episode because I made a point of drinking quite a lot of wine beforehand. Um, so I caught snippets of it in a kind of, oh, cool, uh, kind of way. And then the following day, I decided to actually watch it properly. Um, and I also did um, quite a joyful, well, no, horrifically joyful thing, uh, which is if you've never, again, <laughs> um, been on a TV cookery competition or anything, I was watching it at the same time as checking the live Twitter feed, which is um, mm, quite enjoyable. That's that's a, that's a gamble. A oh yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> tell me about it. That is that is a gamble to um, to check Twitter whilst you're doing anything on the television. How did how did you fare but it on was that? Fun. What were the what were the uh, the potted oh. highlights of of your feedback on Twitter? <laughs> uh, day one. Uh, day one. I think. Someone actually gave me like quite a backhanded compliment because they said, oh, she she effed up her starter, but at least she's got nice eyes. But I don't think that'll make her any happier. <laughs> Does it? Um, I, was like, I was like, uh, yeah, maybe slightly, <laughs> slightly happier. No, of course not. <laughs> um, and then on, I think someone said, what is Harriet even doing on this show? She looks like she works in a cafe. Um, <laughs> nice. Thanks very much for uh, that. But day two, people were a lot kinder. And I think... I had a, I had a bit of backing actually. They were like, Harriet, stop underscoring yourself, and um, just like what's going on with the scoring and all that type of stuff. But you know, that's just uh, yeah, quite quite fun watching it on Twitter anyway unfold. Yeah, see, I've now got an image of you maybe next series when you you've maybe made a mess of sewing again, and Richard Corrigan saying, "What would you give yourself?" He said, "Well, I'll give myself a three, but I've got nice eyes, so maybe a five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wonder how I'll. I'll do in the future. You'd probably get oh, a, a sneering glare from, from Corrigan or any of the other senior judges who, who don't give a huge amount away. Um, would you do it again? It's a it's a tricky one because yes or no. Yes, or, yes, I would do it again. But when the time is right, when I'm prepared to do it, when I'm like confident enough to do it, to do it justice and to know I can really take myself forward when I have enough time to put into it as well. So for instance if my restaurant goes through this year that's quite a heavy investment of time and i that's my primary priority really so um i had such a good time doing the competition though and you know if the timing was right then then yeah sure way back on episode two we spoke to the head chef of al camilla in nottingham alex bond it already has a michelin star and has been acclaimed for its plant-based approach veg is the star of the show which is why we challenged Alex to this. This is probably a sentence I never thought I'd say. Alex Bond, are you ready for the Veg World Cup? Yeah. What is it? Good man. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping that might be your answer. Well, we're gonna we're gonna see if we can get to to an overall winner. I've I've taken potatoes out of the mix just because I think they're probably in a slightly different bracket. But we've got eight quarter finalists. I want to get you see if we can get get to an ultimate winner. So for quarter final number one. It's carrot against tender stem. What are you saying? Tender stem. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Any reasons why? Uh, not a massive... Carrot's probably one of the only veg that I just find quite disappointing. I 
haven't yet. I'm still to be convinced of a great carrot dish or supplier or like Can I just I give we you struggle. One? Go on. There was a there was an amazing heritage carrot dish on at Marcus Waring's restaurant and um still remember it now. And it was just goes back to what you're saying about, you know, meals having various high points and, and when we saw the menu at his tasting menu before we went, thought, well, that doesn't sound massively interesting. And then got there and it was absolutely brilliant and a bit of a surprise as to how good it was. But that's that is my two penneth and, and not well, I know, um, as much as yours. Mark Birchall does one at Moore Hall, but I haven't managed to go yet. It's obviously work commitments and stuff. I think if if I go and and I'm and I don't and we don't like Mark, then I'll definitely give up on carrots. Okay. But I think if anybody Tender can com- if anybody can convince me of carrots, it'd be Mark Birchall. I mean, okay. this looks amazing. Right. Tender stem. Tender stems, yeah, all day for me. Will it be up against aubergine or will it be up against celeriac? Oh, aubergine. Wow, okay. I know, I know people Chef don't like favorite. them. I love them both, but um, I have a real affinity with aubergine and I've convinced many, many people who tell me they hate them um, otherwise. Yeah, aubergine is one of them great veg that I love convincing people with. It's up there with, for me, it's up there with like cauliflower and cabbage. Do you know, like things that your mum cooked that she just like just, boiled into submission. Yeah, yeah, aubergine is one of them that like people are like they just think of like moussaka or like really shit ratatouilles. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it's like, but it's really not. It's a, it's a infinitely more complex and versatile vegetable. All right. Quarterfinal number three, big local derby here. It's artichoke against Jerusalem artichoke. Which one are you going for? Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem? Yeah. Good. I'm e- glad you said that. Easy. I think that's way better. Yeah. And the, the final one then, cauliflower against beetroot. Cauliflower. Cauliflower. All right. Yeah, yeah. So let's get, let's, let's, let's rattle through this into the semi-finals. Yeah. Tender stem against aubergine. Oh, uh, I'm sticking with aubergine. Sticking with aubergine. Yeah, I don't and want Jerusalem that. against yeah. cauliflower. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Right. So the big finale we've got <laughs> in this amazing World Cup of veg, and I, I think this not many people would have put their money on this at the start of the tournament. It's aubergine against Jerusalem artichoke. <laughs> who will who will win, Alex? Bob? Uh Jerusalem. Whoa! Yeah. Uh, just because it, that is outsider. even more uh, versatile than a, a, a than an aubergine. Because you can, right. Right, we do just des- be- we do before- desserts with Jerusalem's as well. Yeah, I've had a Jerusalem artichoke ice cream before, and that was very yeah. good. Do you want to give an honourable mention to anyone we've not picked up in this in this little eight ball before we move on? Uh, yeah, hispy cabbage. The hispy's one of the first dishes we ever did was a, a hispy dish, uh, and it still gets people requests from two and a half years ago. When's the hispy dish coming back? And I say I don't do dishes. We try not to bring things back because we like to try and progress. Uh, but I, I do love a hispy. I love the chard. I love a, just a chard buttered hispy. And our final clip of this week's show comes from our most recent episode with the head chef of Inesia in Wales, Gareth Ward. 
Now, in every sense, he is a man who does things a little differently. There's a Himalayan salt chamber at the restaurant, but in the dining room, there's the added bonus of a DJ, which plays a bit of techno on a Friday night, not your average Michelin star restaurant. So when you've spent an absolute fortune on getting like a proper system put in, you know, like all hidden speakers and subs and everywhere, because I just love my music. And then it was like, I want a set of decks. <laughs> I want a DJ. So I got you're a, a frustrated DJ. Aren't yeah, you? I, I, do you know what? I, nightclub owner. I used to. Me and my friend, like, we got a very close friend of mine called Michael Ashton. He's, he's like me and him and a guy called Mark and Steve as well. We used to go like years ago when I worked at Seven Stars in Chincliffe. We used to go out all the time and just we were obsessed with music, um, and nightclubs and DJs and we just used to go out. We used to just never sleep really, uh, and I've always wanted to be a DJ, but I just I don't. I, every time I try and learn, I just I can't do it. I need some proper time. I should have learned in this period, to be honest. Yeah, you should have done that in Welsh. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, definitely Welsh. Um, <laughs> so, one, so this guy turned up one day, and he was a friend of a friend, and he was talking about how he's got a set of decks, and he wants to sell them. And I was like, okay, how much you want for them? He's like, oh, give me a thousand pounds. I was like, I'll have them right now. And they technically twelve tens, like Mark <laughs> two, so they like worth a fortune, and he, like they can't get them anymore. Um. So I bought them, and then I bought this incredible mixer as well from these guys called Master Sounds, and you're, it's amazing mixer. And then I was like, I need a DJ now. So I advertised on Instagram for a full-time DJ, and the only one, one person applied, and it was a local guy, and he's like, he turns up, and um, turns up for an interview stroke, um, like, give me do, me a, do me a set during service. Brilliant. <laughs> So he turns up, right, and it's this guy, and he's from Towin, and um, he's like, I haven't touched, just to let you know, I haven't touched a set of decks for, tw- like, 16 years. And I was like, right, okay. And I had to show him how to turn them on, right, <laughs> and make them work. And he was like, uh, I, when my oldest son was born, I got rid of my decks and I bought a guitar because the club scene like what he was doing at the time was was it he said it wasn't right for me kids hardcore techno dj that's what he was he'd never I, I showed him my records he's like i don't know any of these songs i've never heard them in my life and he smashed it the guy is like so naturally talented as i mean this guy's like one of them do you know them annoying friends that you've got that can turn the hand to anything yeah so he plays like scratch golf which is what to I know of golf is that he doesn't play with a handicap because he's that good yeah. <laughs> you that's know? pretty much the gist of it yeah Yeah, and but he hates golf he just plays golf because he's so good at it why wouldn't he you know and he's like everything he does he's amazing at and he pisses me right off <laughs> <laughs> and he's he's, de- he's unbelievable at a DJ like and it's he, he doesn't do like CG days or like it's it's all vinyl. He doesn't know how to use computers. It's like everything is like earphones, sound, you know, vinyl mix, proper proper mixing, and um, yeah, and he's unbelievable. And he's completely changed the atmosphere in the restaurant. So he comes in, he starts at half six every day as his staff lunch, starts like winding up with the the playlist that like it's on the line, and then he just starts at eight o'clock. We get everybody into the restaurant with passenger by Iggy Pop. And then he just Brilliant. goes, he goes hell for leather with the DJ, like proper mixing. And on a Friday, I'll, I'll let him bring his own techno in and we have a Friday night techno night. 
I've recorded Fantastic. it a few times on Instagram. It's hilarious. But when you... Because obviously it's not blasting. It's not really loud. It's it's a good level. But when it's not blasting, techno is actually amazing in a restaurant because it's quite repetitive. Where Obviously, if you turned it up full blast, the customers would probably all die. You know what I mean? <laughs> but... <laughs> It's uh, <laughs> don't want that. Yeah, but it's it's he's he's incredible, man, and it's just like I'm just like again, it's just like who doesn't want to sit in a restaurant with a DJ, getting twenty or six courses and just having a great time, getting pissed. You know oh, what I mean? And like, sounds a dream. Yeah, I, when I come when I come to an estate for dinner, I'm probably going to turn it with a glow stick. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe a sleeveless vest on. And yeah, like a, you want like a crop top a thing, like like the only uh, gear in the village. You don't want to see me in a crop top. <laughs> Definitely don't want to see me in a crop top, I can you of that. So thanks for listening to our best of source material so far. Normal service resumes next week. Hope you can join us then. Bye for now.